You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. Today, we have back one of our most popular guests with Luke Roman. Luke is a super intelligent macro and geopolitical thinker. And on today's show, we cover all the drama currently unfolding around the Fed's current rate hike pause, whether this is it or will they keep on tightening in future meetings, how the Treasury is going to issue potentially $2.1 trillion of additional debt just in the second half of 2023, and what impact that might have. We talk about the energy market, its impact on Treasury yields, the Bitcoin shift that's currently taking place that was initiated with BlackRock's filing for a Bitcoin spot ETF, and many other legacy financial businesses trying to enter the fold into the Bitcoin exchange market. This isn't one you're going to want to miss. And so without further delay, here's my chat with Mr. Luke Roman. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm here with Luke Groman. Luke, great to have you, man. I got a lot of questions for you today. <laughs> Thanks for having me back on, Preston. It's great to be here. It's great to see you again. Yeah, great to see you. So I think the first thing on everybody's mind is, so the Fed paused. Are they pausing here? And they're, are they actually going to start up like they're flexing that they're going to do? Or is this it? Are they done hiking? Where, how do you see this kind of playing out from here? I see this as the latest attempt to ride two horses with one ass, as you and I have been talking about for a number of years. And and to their credit, by and large, they've done a pretty good job of, of, of stringing this along. And what I mean by that is that they are into yet another intractable situation, which is to say, if they keep raising rates, they're going to make banking system strains worse sovereign debt strains worse, commercial real estate worse, venture capital worse, and risk very much a nonlinear crisis of some description on the downside that we got a little glimpse of in March. At the same time, we still have inflation that headline is whatever it is, 5.3 or 4%. Yes, it's come down. A lot of the headline decline has been driven by energy, which is as you will probably talk about in a bit, maybe about to start going against them in coming months. Inflation is still too high. And so they don't want to just say we're done. And so I think what they're trying to do is sort of ride two horses, one ass, split the baby, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use, which is, okay, we're going to pause to try to sort of give the, the strains a chance to get their feet under them while at the same time promising to get more aggressive or, or, or still stay aggressive in the back half of the year with the 50 basis points that they talked about with the dot plot that they still have on the, on the menu, I guess. So I think that's my read of what they're trying to do, and we'll see if it works. Coming out of the debt ceiling issue, the general consensus on Bitcoin Twitter, traditional finance Twitter, was this idea that they had to refill the, the Treasury general account. You even went a step further in your weekly report, and you, you looked at the second half of 2023. And this is a number that was way bigger than anything else that I had read anywhere else. And you said that you're expecting a 2.1 
trillion dollar U.S. Treasury issuance in the second half of 2023. And here's the math on it for people that are wondering how you came up with this number. 1.1 trillion of it is just U.S. fiscal deficit, another half a trillion to refill the TGA with the general account, and another half a trillion for the Fed quantitative tightening that's currently taking place for a total of 2.1 trillion. Do you still stand by this number? Because this was probably like a month ago that you published this number. Do you still stand by this number? And more importantly, the reason everybody's talking about this is because they're saying it's going to be a liquidity suck in the second half of, of the year. And if it's truly a liquidity suck, this would not be good for risk on assets. And to date, since they've got through the deficit ceiling, it's been anything of the sort. The, the equity markets have ripped, absolutely ripped. Talk to us about what's going on here, because this is crazy, Luke. It's been confusing to me. I stand by the number, particularly if you get the dollar rising, then you could even add to that number, right? Because you're, we saw last year when the dollar gets strong, foreigners sell treasuries. So your net effective issuance. So I, I think the dynamics are still there. I think there's two offsets. I think, you know, the reverse repo rundown that you can get some liquidity to basically shift dollars from sort of the left pocket to the right pocket into the TGA and therefore not pull down on bank reserves, not pull. There is an element of that, I think, that is, in my view, it's timing. In other words, you can do that for a bit and there's some bidding up of you know relative rates to get the money from the left pocket to the right pocket, so to speak. But that can, that can buy some time. I think the bigger factor in terms of explaining what we've seen with the market just ripping despite all of that is, I think, positioning. Is I think, unfortunately, myself included, and there are a lot of people have identified this potential liquidity suck as a serious issue. I've also added on, hey, you're going to have commercial real estate. You're going to that's going to be needing to do a lot of refinancing, et cetera, at much higher rates. You're going to have venture capital needing to do the same. So the sort of the, the aggregate liquidity suck at much higher rates in the back half of this year, I think, is still absolutely a key story. But I think it was a key story that everybody knew about and wasn't positioned for in February when the market was ripping. Hey, everything's great, great, great. And then, oh, God, banking, March, April, markets were, were pretty tumultuous. And then I think everybody sort of swung to that side. I piled on on that in, in May. Uh, I still think it's a real issue when you look out over the next six months. So I think it's really a timing standpoint of, hey, we have to unwind some positioning around everybody was positioned for this liquidity suck. And so now you've kind of had like this short squeeze uh, higher when it hasn't happened instantly. Mm. And I still think it's going to happen, but I just think it's a, I think it's a timing and a positioning issue, I guess, if you will, in terms of when we're going to start to see it play out. So you're thinking it's more of a short squeeze because people weren't positioned for it to start moving up and the lag, they weren't accounting for the lag of, of what was happening. When you're looking at this move, doesn't it seem or look like maybe it's a little overdone? I mean, we're talking right now, uh, it's the 20th of June right now, and uh, it seems like this move might be a little overdone, maybe time for a correction. But would you say that the general move in equities is going to continue to bid from here? Because I can tell you from a momentum standpoint, everything that I'm looking at is suggesting that the momentum has shifted, like the uh, sell-off that we had in 2022 
is over from a momentum standpoint and it it really is feeling and looking uh you know depending on which which metrics you're using from a momentum standpoint but it it sure looks like the momentum is is done on the bear market and we're now in a bull market with respect to equities only interesting yeah i think you still have to work through this credit issues i think you're the liquidity suck of government the liquidity suck of cre liquidity of vc now where could I be wrong is, is to the extent there is a, a shift in where we are going from a tipping point where these deficits just go to straight fiscal dominance, basically, where these deficits are now just inflationary and equity start to reflect that. But I, I still think we're going to get, I still think the amount of liquidity stuff you've got to have, refill TGA, what's going on with deficits, what's going on with commercial real estate, VC. And then I think what's going on with energy as well. That to me, when I said before, everything, you know, I think the CRE, VC, fiscal is still, I, I think is still, you know, the TGA, the liquidity sector there, I think is, is very well understood. So those factors, I think are all very well understood. I think those are priced in. What I don't think is priced in is those three factors in the context of an energy price that starts rising and there's not a thing the government can do about it to get it back down with SPR, uh, with shale. And then you start talking about second half of the year where, uh-oh, headline inflation is moving back up. Headline inflation is back to six. It's back to seven. And that, I think, is what is not priced in at all at this point, is really the overlap of that credit issue with what I think is likely to happen with, with headline inflation around energy specifically. I want to get into the energy piece and how this equates back to the bond market. But before we go there, I guess I'm just I'm really trying to zoom out and trying to understand why we're seeing what we're seeing in, in risk on equities. And you're also seeing it with gold. You're seeing it with Bitcoin. Where does all this buying power that has manifested itself, that has been jam packed into fixed income for the last 40 years? It has to go somewhere. There's nowhere else for it to go. And I think anybody in fixed income is looking at it right now, Luke, and they're saying they can't recover from this. They're not going to be able to control this, is what I think the broader market is saying when they're looking at fixed income bonds. They're saying, none of this is under control. This has to keep selling off. They have to monetize this debt collectively across the G7, right? I guess this is the question. Are fixed income investors, have they finally figured it out that there's no end in sight and that they're the patsy at the table? And they're now trying to front run that buying power into something that gives them some type of scarcity. And that's either equities or that's gold and Bitcoin. Like that's the only place you can go. PE ratios, do they even matter, Luke? Do they even matter at this point if the fixed income market is that much of a disaster and that's the general consensus as to what's happening? That is that is the $64,000 question. And, and as you know, this is something we've been talking about for some time is, is that ultimately, you know, my view's long been, ultimately the bond market's going to wake up and say, oh God, we're the sucker at the card table and we need to squeeze into, like you said, equities, gold, Bitcoin, real estate, et cetera. And is it possible it's now? It is. It is. And that's, I think it, you raise a really good point in bringing that up, which is it's so easy to get focused on, okay, here's the credit crunch. And if everybody knows the credit crunch is coming, then it's the credit crunch no longer is going to be priced. You know, they, 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 that's discounted. So what's the second derivative to the credit crunch? The second derivative of the credit crunch is, is 
Are they going to let the system collapse in that credit crunch or are they going to go back to printing? And we know what they're going to do. The Fed has shown its hand. The Fed showed its hand in March. Fed had a chance to end inflation. Now, all they had to do was stand aside, say, Oprah, you've got all that money in Silicon Valley Bank and unsecured deposits. Goodbye. Goodbye. And if you'd have done that and you'd have let a bank run happen and you wipe out unsecured depositors, you basically take all that currency you created over the last however many years, certainly a lot of it in the last three, and a big chunk of it goes in one instant. And you would end, you would end inflation now. That was the option for the Fed ending inflation. And you know, you get policymakers say, and, and a lot of economists say, well, that was too draconian. You can't do that. You can't risk the system. The banks are too big to fail. That's fine. And I tend to agree because there's systemic political issues of just letting it all go poof. However, there's no half pregnant. Mm-hmm. You either let it all go poof. Or you're now an inflationary regime. You're now in an Argentine with U.S. characteristics regime. And and when you layer on sort of the excitement about AI, like the thing that's been making me most uncomfortable about this sort of this next three to six months, hey, there's this credit crunch coming is exactly what you described, which is what if we cross the Rubicon? What if we cross the Rubicon in March where now the bond market goes, okay, they're not going to let banks fail. And they're not going to let the treasury market go get get too bumpy. And if that's the case, why do I own duration? Why do I own bonds? Yeah. Like this is and and to your point, you're starting to see signs of that again. Like I was looking at charts yesterday that the ten year gilt on the UK just broke out higher September highs <laughs> where where things were you know, breaking, where things were breaking. And we haven't even gotten to the oil part of this movie yet, where yeah. like. And that's why when you read, you know, what, what we write, a lot of it is this barbell approach of like, I have very high conviction in how this movie is going to end, which is they are going to print it all. They're going to do yield curve control. They're going to you know, basically make borrowing. They're taking real rates way more negative than anybody thinks possible. Negative 15% like they did at the end of World War II, maybe more via some measure of printing, yield curve control, et cetera, et cetera. And bondholders are going to get killed on a real basis. It'll be a debt jubilee or restructuring on a real basis. And I've always said those is, is particularly in the last year, year and a half, like I, the short run, I have no conviction, as much conviction as I have, very high conviction at the end game, the short run, no conviction. And so it's that flexibility of, of that. But I would readily concede, is it possible we've reached that tipping point where the bond market is waking up again? Yeah, I would fully concede that and that that's possible. And you've got some inflationary factors that could be waking them up as well, right? Number one, the increasingly, the increasing idea, you know, it's talked about by Warren Mosler, Lynn Alden, myself, some others, that deficits are inflationary. Rate hikes are now inflationary because they're adding to the deficit. And then some of the stuff that, that we've written about recently in terms of energy, peak cheap energy and shale possibly rolling over that I think is another inflationary pressure on the come. Well, I mean, just yeah, look to, it, to that point, Luke, that these higher rates are inflationary. That's a really hard concept for a lot of people to wrap their head around. But when you go back to this number that you published recently for the second half of 2023, $2.1 trillion has to be issued. Like you're at a point now where they don't have the inflation under control. Sure, it's come down. But the amount that they're going to have to monetize, and then we start talking about the oil thing, which we're going to get to, 
is where I think the typical bond investor in the market, like the first year, I think they were all kind of like, oh yeah, this is going to be transitory. This is just because because of COVID, they had to do this thing, right? And then it's going to go back down into like a half a percent of inflation, like everybody grew accustomed to for a decade. Like we can't produce inflation was the narrative prior to, to COVID. So everyone was just expecting that to come back. And I think you're starting just in the past six months to maybe nine months, everybody in the, in the bond market is starting to come to this realization. And they're saying, hold on a second, I can do this math. And this math is suggesting that none of this is under control. And, and actually, we might be past the Rubicon, right? I think that's where they're at. Right now. Yeah, I think the bond market is broadly, I think there are starting to be people doing that math. And, and when you look at the math, particularly, you know, the point that Warren Mosler makes where, look, what's the difference between a $600 billion STEMI where you hand the money to everybody and the Fed raising rates to increase deficits by $600 billion because of interest? The money comes from the same place. The only difference is the marginal propensity to consume of who's getting that $600 billion STEMI STEMI or the $600 billion interest STEMI. And so when you see it just goes to wealthier investors. And so their marginal propensity to consume tends to be lower. They do things like invest. They do things like buy higher end you know, vacations and, and things like that uh, on a slower basis. But the money ends up in the economy. So I think between, I think that's on one, there, there's a growing marginal part of the bond market that is seeing that. But I still regularly see bond. You know, I had a conversation with a bond market veteran, you know, yesterday, like was saying uh, you know, on Twitter, where he's saying, look, you know, you get me a, a recession and the bond market, you know, rates will go back to one and people would be begging to finance, you know, to, to finance US deficits at one. And, you know, my reply was that once you get over 100 percent debt to GDP and deficits of 8 percent of GDP with unemployment where they are. If you take G, big G, which is nominal GDP growth, if you take big G below rates, like the deficits rise nonlinearly toward infinity, especially mm. in a country that finances or that where marginal tax receipts are driven by, by the stock market, which we once again are seeing play out in absolute space. This, they're going to be changing. The deficit's going to be X and they'll say, oh, we'll buy that. Except by the time they get there, it's actually X you know, X times 1.3, and then they almost get to there, then it's X times 1.8, then it's... The deficit will just keep running away from them if big G goes below R. And that's the like the math. I still think the majority of the bond market doesn't realize that, you know, as I, as I said uh, recently, and I've said uh, for much of this year in a couple of different presentations, like for the first time in on, on record in any investor's living memory... The risk-free asset has risk. Treasury bonds have risk. They are either they are no longer risk-free. They either have a duration risk or they have credit risk. Because if if you're willing to go into deflation, again, it's this once debt deficits get so big, it's the it's the same problem with the banks. You could have stopped inflation. Just let a bank crisis happen. Let uninsured depositors' money go poof. That was your choice. But if you're going to bail them all out, then you've chosen inflation and. Right now, we're still in the sort of this belief that you can be half pregnant of, hey, you know, yeah, they're going to not let banks, you know, unsecured deposits go poof, but they're they're still going to fight rates. We're going to pause for a second. We're still going to do 50 more later this year. And you raise a really good point, which is at some point, the bond market's going to figure that out. 
I don't think it has yet, which is why I still think you get sort of, and I'm not sure the policymakers understand that. And that's my big fear is like, oh, they make one more mistake. But I would readily admit I'm being cute. And, and my personal positioning, my investment recommendations are, are a reflection of that recognition that I might be being cute because we've been talking about you want to own gold and Bitcoin and uh, some of these sensitive inflation sensitive assets because that's where they're going. One versus, in, you know, do they make one last mistake? What I think is also important to highlight here is when we're looking at these equity indices, these moves are being driven by like seven companies. It's not like the, yeah. the whole market is being that is are driving these indices. And in, in fact, I think Apple has set a, a new all time high, even through the, this big bear market that we went through in 2022. Apple's already setting new highs. One other key important thing that you sometimes reference in some of your writings is a comparison using uh, TLT, which is a 20-year iShares bond ETF, in the denominator of a stock comparison. So what, what do we mean by that? Instead of looking at the NASDAQ in dollar terms, you look at the NASDAQ in 20-year bond terms and what I think is so fascinating about this comparison, you also do it with gold, where instead of gold in dollar terms, you look at gold in 20-year bond terms. And if you would be making this comparison, imagine a chart where you have gold or the NASDAQ in dollars, and then you also have the same exact line, but you re-denominate it into, into 20-year bonds. Since 1980, you would have never outperformed in that bond denomination in the denominator. You would have never outperformed the dollar for up until the 2020 COVID event. But after the COVID event, all of a sudden you're seeing that re-denomination with 20-year bonds down in the in the denominator is ripping relative to the dollar. And that's because of, of this sell-off that I think. I don't think they're going to get this under control. I think if a person is continuing to do that re-denomination in the 20-year bonds, you're going to continue to see that comparison just rip away from, you name it, in dollar terms uh, from here on out. And I think that that's a really important consideration because anybody, the all-weather risk parity portfolio is all about having a very sizable, a levered position in long-duration bonds. And anybody implementing that from COVID forward, I think is going to get just destroyed, absolutely destroyed moving yeah, forward. It's a huge drag, right? I'm, I'm curious if you would agree that, that you think risk parity at this point in time to whatever this event is that we're describing is a train wreck of a portfolio management uh, moving forward. Yeah, I've, I've said the classic 60-40 is not going to work in in what we're in and heading toward, which is to say, I you know, or I refer to it as a 60-40-0 portfolio, right? Which sixty percent sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds, zero percent gold and Bitcoin. That is where the overwhelming majority of investors are, and I don't mm-hmm. think that's going to work. I think the stocks will be fine, and I think long duration bonds are going to get killed versus everything, but especially on a real basis, but especially against gold, equities, yeah. Bitcoin, equities, because the only way they can make the math work is with severely negative real interest rates. And this is just, we're still in the sort of between two trapezes moment, the half pregnant moment of, well, they can get it there. They're still, you know, that's, you know, you, where's the bubble? The bubble is in faith that they can, that they can get back to 2% and sort of put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Because I agree with you. 
the Rubicon was crossed in 2020 in terms of where that took us beyond the debt threshold. You know, there, there's been, you know, there's been great research on that by Reinhard Rogoff, Brian Hirschman at Hirschman Capital ran through that data and cited it. Said once a country gets to 130% debt to GDP over the last 120 years, 98% of those countries have defaulted on their debt, either via a restructuring or much more often via a sustained period of high rates of inflation that basically severely repress, punish, hurt the purchasing power of long duration bondholders. And that's where we are. The one example in that whole case, the 2% was Japan. And we're even seeing Japan now having trouble, right? So it's, you know, forever. It's like, well, what's the 2%? It's like, well, it's Japan. Oh, see, well, we're just Japan. So we don't have to worry. Well, even Japan is now going, oh, <laughs> yeah, I think we're beyond the Rubicon on it in terms of there's, there's no getting back. There's still faith that we're going to get back. And in terms of the, you know, the capital management is really as a time horizon thing, right? So for, mm-hmm. for me, where I'm at in terms of this credit crunch side, you know, it's a concern that these policymakers are willing to try to sort of one last fight out of credibility, one last whoosh. I readily concede that we might not get one last whoosh, which is why I'm still very overweight, cold Bitcoin. I sell a lot of equities, I'm very overweight industrial equities, especially tied to electrical generation in my own personal investments. But it's, I agree. I agree. The, like the math is done. Like they, that is like, it's all over, but the crime. Now it, it's in the cake. Now we're just sort of waiting for it to be marked to market and play out. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Luke, one of the things that I think is hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around is the difference that you're seeing in these top 10 equities on these indices that are driving the indices to very high levels relative to what feels like a recession and extreme difficulty for the common person as they're going through. If, if you have a small business or even a, a medium-sized business, it, it's a struggle to this day right now. Like Everybody, I think, is expecting a recession. So they're like, how in the world can these equity markets be demonstrating a momentum shift. And when I look around everywhere I go, you can see it, you can feel it, that there's this recession brewing. I'm going to throw up a slide real fast here that that was in your newsletter. And this is cardboard box recession. I found this to be a really interesting chart. And what it is, is it's showing the amount of cardboard boxes based on the the square uh, footage of the boxes that's shipped annually in the US and what you're showing is that this has been going down drastically which is you know for people that just want a simple way to understand this is just Amazon shipping a whole lot less packages than they were a year before and it's it's demonstrating recessionary levels of shipments right now today which i think demonstrates the the middle class and lower class in the US is struggling they they aren't able to break ahead because prices are so dang high help us understand this dislocation that we're seeing in the indices that are being driven by 10 companies and the reality of what everyday people are experiencing in their in their economy what and what do we expect moving forward in the next 6 months to a year does that even become crazier or more dislocated like what what do people can can they think about this yeah i think it's a it's a great point it's a great framing is you know cardboard box and that's a chart all all credit that to jeff kleintop at, at charles schwab that's his chart i thought it was a great chart so I, I highlighted it you're seeing it in rv sales which are a great leading indicator they have plummeted two years in a row they you've seen it in net uh heavy duty truck net orders been weak for six months these are these are things I've always used in a 28 year career. They've been great leading indicators of weakness. Uh, U.S. federal tax receipts on a trailing three month or their treasury receipts. Excuse me, this is all in. This is tax. Everything the government takes in, they are down uh, on a trailing three month basis year over year, down 20. percent There's only two times in the last 20 years that they've been down. X 2016, a timing issue. Only two top prior times: 2008 and 2001. 9/11 great financial crisis. So you're seeing these signs that we're already in a recession in a lot of these metrics. And the fact that the markets are at ripping the way they are led by whatever very narrow leadership of tech around a theme of AI uh, reminds me very much of early in my career in the late 90s. We went into, you know, you had a Southeast Asia crisis, 
you, uh, took the U.S. industrial sector into a very severe recession beginning around summer of 98. And the U.S. industrial sector stayed in recession with some sort of bumping around, some fake recoveries or, or feints at recoveries, really till 02, uh, early 03, late 02, early 03. So you, you had this three, four year period of time where it was just oil was death, industrials death. And at the same time, the NASDAQ around a theme was, hey, new economy. We don't have to worry about Parker Hannafin and Eaton and ExxonMobil and, and all of these old economy stocks because the internet's going to change everything. Productivity and, and earnings and earnings are so old economy. We're looking at eyeballs and clicks. And, and it's to me very reminiscent of that time horizon where do I think AI is going to change everything? Yeah, I do. Do I think it's going to change it faster than the internet? Yes. Do I think the productivity enhancements that people are excited about are going to come fast enough to offset the recession that's happening in those sort of a lot of other areas now? It didn't then, and I don't think it's going to now. You also had back then, if you remember, going into the 2000, you know, year 2000, oh, God, all the computers are going to shut down. And the Fed injected a little bit more liquidity, make sure the banks had money, make sure. And, and that sort of was the last little turbocharge of that, of that run. So it's when you say, hey, how would you explain it? To me, that is the analog where you have a very narrow market with a theme that is a very powerful theme. You know, to me, it's really interesting is ironically, if AI is more successful than expected, sooner than expected, unemployment's going to rise, deficits are going to explode, and you're going to get bond market problems faster. That $2.1 trillion deficit yes. effective issuance number is going to get much bigger, much faster. You're going to have a bond market problem. And I just continue to be of the view that if you have a bond market problem, Apple's not going to go up if there's a bond market problem. Full stop. NVIDIA is not going to go up if there's a bond market problem initially. The response to the bond market problem, absolutely. We'll send it to the moon. (laughs) Exactly. And and that's why I go back to that. That that is still my base case that we're going to have another bond market problem Mm -hmm. for a number of different catalyst reasons. But I concede that the bond market just goes, you know, that. It's possible, you, you know, that, hey, what we're seeing when is the bond market going, well, screw it. They're coming back quick. But go ahead. When you say a bond market problem, are you really saying the mid to small banks that have all these bonds on their on their balance sheet? Because we already got a taste of that. It resulted in more bank failures per market cap than the 2008-2009 crisis, whether people realize that or not. Is that still systemically in the system? And is that still brewing, but just kind of has been kicked to the right a little bit on the timeline, or did they actually get all this under control? The banking problem was just a U.S. fiscal problem. And that's like, that's the key is, is so they didn't get it under control because it's a deficit problem. They regulated these banks into buying this stuff since 2014 when foreign central banks stopped buying it. And the whole gambit was as long as inflation's low, then we're fine. We can keep this going. And inflation went up and then they had to raise rates. And, and realistically, they shouldn't have, but they should have just let inflation run hot for a bit. And, and we probably in a better shape than we are. You know, now we're even in worse shape. They need negative real rates. They need a sucker at the card table to hold 31 trillion in U.S. federal debt 
at a negative 10 to negative 20% real rate. And that balance sheet doesn't exist outside the Fed. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that was and the they point need I was holding at that rate for years. They need to hold, and this is not like, oh, for just one year. They need somebody to hold 31 trillion in US federal debt at negative 10 to negative 20% real rates for three years. But by they need someone with that balance sheet, the balance sheet's not there. But by implementing such a policy, let's say that you were, you could sit in both seats. You could be at the Fed and the Treasury right now, Luke. And you could implement whatever policy you want. The real result to the economy is further consolidation of enterprise. These yeah. 10 companies that are driving all these indices on the equity side would just further get consolidated. And you would see just total destruction across mid and small cap companies. They just can't compete at this point because of these policies, which then causes further unemployment issues, which then, so like, we're truly talking about a dying patient when we're talking about any G7 country. So like these policies, I, I understand what you're saying from a mathematical standpoint, it makes total sense, but it doesn't actually solve the social unrest that's happening in society because of these policies and what they're doing. And I'm curious if, if you would highlight any points in there that you disagree with me or that you think are even, or, or maybe if you're agreeing with me, what is something else that we're not thinking about that, that pops out of these policies from an everyday consumer market participant standpoint that the Fed is not talking about? They're just talking about the numbers and trying to make it all balanced and keeping enough li- liquidity in the system. But like we all know that, that they're turning society inside out through these policies. Well, there's, there's two things they can't control. And I think both of these things are things that are not priced in. Number one is you, you referred to a bit with AI, right? With this technology consolidation of enterprise, you know, our, our, our friend Jeff Booth highlighted it. It is in his, you know, his great book, uh, the price of tomorrow, right? The, the deflation driven by tech is nonlinear and it's fundamentally incompatible with the money system as it exists. And AI takes everything he talks about in that great book and turbocharges it. Yes. At, at, at an accelerating rate. And so while people are excited about productivity and the improvement for earnings, it's going to be an improvement for earnings in the very short run in the grand scan of history as companies, you know, you think about what this does. This takes unemployment to the moon as you're replacing high wages. It takes government receipts through the floor. It takes deficits to the moon. It takes unemployment up. And then you're basically, it consolidates power and with a very small number of corporates who have all of the power and a government that can't fund its military, can't fund its entitlements, can't fund its debt, can't fund any of it without the Fed printing the money. And so paradoxically, AI, the success of AI that everybody's excited about is fundamentally incompatible with the currency system, the debt-backed currency system we have. AI ensures the death of the monetary system as it exists. You, that you, need, you can't have a debt-backed monetary system with AI. You will have to have the neutral reserve asset be something that is energy tied, something flexible face value, gold, Bitcoin. That you, you have to have a neutral. You could have them de facto be equities in theory, right? You could basically have surpluses, deficits recycled into equities, which then again gets into your initial point of like, hey, the market's kind of acting like, like, wow, this is, 
Very possible. I would readily concede that. That's why I would never be never you know totally out of equity. I always want to have a good size equity exposure because this is this is happening so fast you can't forecast it. So number one, the Fed has I don't have any idea, and there's nothing they can do about it if they do. Number one, that that what is happening in AI and tech that everyone's so excited about is guaranteed to destroy. It's fundamentally incompatible with the debt-backed currency system. Number one. Number two is the gambit that the U.S. government ran last March to dump the SPR, to bring oil prices down, to break Russia, to break inflation, the whole gambit was it has to, Russia has to break and inflation has to come down before shale rolls over. Because mm-hmm. if shale rolls over, they're done. Because shale has been 90% of global oil supply growth over the last 10 years. Shale's decline rate is very high. If you shut all the wells down today, it's going to fall 20, 30%. That's 90% of production growth over the last 10 years. Uh, and the bottom line is, is they ran the SPR down, they got inflation down a bit, but now shale's rolling, which means they're done. And that's the other big thing I think the Fed has no idea is price too strong. They're not factoring in, the markets are not factoring, which is to say, uh, the decline in headline inflation from energy inflation to deflation over the last 12 months is roughly a percent, percent and a half, as it says in the last report for May, whatever. That number is going to reverse, which means your headline number of 5.3 that everyone's comforting themselves about without a severe recession that really drives oil down. Because again, oil supplies are now going to start falling faster than demand has ever fallen in any recession in 60 years. You're going to take infl- headline inflation back toward six and a half. Seven, you're done. They're done. And that's the other thing I don't think they get. It's the thing that markets don't get. Maybe bond markets start to look at when we see some of these bonds. But those two things, and that's part of the reason why I'm like, when you let off with, hey, is this possible? It is possible. It's why I keep talking about this barbell is anybody who tells you that like, hey, here's for sure how it's going to go, run. Uh, because like, no, one's, no one's ever seen... like. I could I could paint you a couple different pictures on AI. I can paint it on energy. I know the data, yeah. but it, this this combination is so toxic, so unprecedented, with so much leverage. Like wow! Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. 
If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. So you have a quote on this shale uh, comment that you have. Six counties in West Texas are now 100% responsible for all global oil production growth. And you're saying that that is rolling over. Am I understanding that? Okay. So when I read this, when I, when I read this in your report, I was kind of like, there's no way that's correct. Like that sounds crazy to me that these six counties in West Texas are the ones that are responsible for, for the global oil production growth. Help us understand what you're getting at here and why the shale rolling over is such a big deal with respect to oil prices. Because I think people that are looking at the market with this 40-year track record of what happens next, they're looking at bond prices, they're looking at inflation coming down, they're looking at the Fed pausing, and they're saying, all right, here comes the recession, which means oil prices are going to collapse. The oil industry is going to be behind the power curve, and we're going to get a drop in in oil prices from here on out, is what I would think if you took a person looking at the history would be expecting. You're saying that you don't think that's what's about to play out. So explain to us. 100%. And and I think every one of the hundreds of PhD economists at the Fed are doing that. I think most Wall Street strategists are doing that. I think the bond market's doing that. And they're not looking at the geology of shale. And they're not looking at what has transpired over the last 10 years. Now, that quote is from a report by uh, Goering and Rosenzweig, great energy research firm. They made available, publicly available, their 1Q23 commentary on May 31 of this year. And I would encourage all listeners to Google it, download it, read it. It's unbelievable. And yes, that's what they highlight, which is they highlight six counties in West Texas and the Permian are now 100% of global, not global production growth. They highlight, uh, or excuse me, Enveris, uh, another energy consultant on Bloomberg, uh, was quoted 90% of global production growth over the last 10 years has come from U.S. shale. You can see shale is rolling over everywhere but the Permian. And what, what Go Rosen note in that report is the Permian's going to roll over in the next 6 to 12 months, 18 months at, at most, at current prices, current prices, which is a critical, critical caveat. And he says, well, that's fine. So what, Luke? Well, so what? Let's take oil to 150. Yeah, it's not rolling over anymore. But if oil at 150, headline inflation is back to seven and a half. Mm-hmm. Seven and a half headline inflation, the bond market is throwing up on itself. 
seven and a half inflation, Apple, Nvidia, all these tech go-go stocks suddenly are getting dumped like crazy. Seven How about half, from the banks? You know, Ta- tell us what happens with the banks at that point. The regional. Oh, banks. We, we go right back to it because you're going to be yeah. having rates rising up against it. So now they're more and more upside down. BTFP usage is going to be going up. Deficits are going to be rising. Stagflationary impulses are going to be rising. So you're there is a lacency around what's happening in energy that is shocking to me. You can see very clearly. We know the percentage of global growth that shale has been. We can see, I've highlighted it to, to clients, uh, it's in the report you're citing, that if you look at the big four U.S. shale basins, Fermian, the Bakken, Anayabrara, and Eagleford, the decline rate of legacy production has gone from 5.8% last August, 5.8% per month, to 6.1% per month in January of this year, to 6.4% per month uh, in June of this year. Now, that's not to say you're going to decline at a 72%, you know, 6% times 12% rate. The rate of decline declines the, once you stop producing. So again, the annual rate of decline of shale, uh, if you stop all production today, would be probably 20, 25, maybe 30% at the high end. It'd probably be lower end at 20 to 25%. Here's the problem that the street is missing. If you go back and look at global oil demand over the last 60 years, up and down annual production or annual demand growth, the worst, the two biggest declines in global oil demand growth were 1980, down 3.3% globally, and 2020, when we basically shut down the world economy, down, I think it's 83 or 8.6% year over year. So if 90% of production growth is now rolling over at current prices, and if you stop it, it's going to fall 20 to 25 in a year, your marginal source of production is going to fall more than demand has ever fallen in any scenario mm-hmm. by a multiple. And that is where the SPR comes in, right? So the SPR they've run down, that's helped things. But again, by virtue of doing that, now the SPR is at this lowest level since 1986. And that thing is not infinite. In fact, it's not even as useful as they say, because you get down, I'm told you get down to the barrel, the bottom of the barrel, and there's who knows what's down there? It's crap. It might be unusable. And they don't yeah. know where that level is. They're pulling it out you're, of caves. <laughs> yeah. You're looking at an energy situation where unless oil rises a lot, which again, turn around headline inflation, turn around the entire the Fed did it narrative, turn around everything that is in the market today, or you're going to start having supply problems, which do the same thing. And you're going to have supply problems with the banks you know, where they are with SPR, where it is. And with shale, I mean, you need higher energy prices, the oil prices in particular, significantly higher to prevent a severe supply issue that will accomplish the same thing effectively. And that is not in the market. That is like that. Absolutely not in the market in terms of what that would do. So as I'm hearing this, the, my immediate thought is, okay, well, how long is that transition going to take to play out where it starts manifesting itself potentially in higher prices? Because you know you hear things like this, and then it takes a year or two years for it to play out, and it's, and it's kind of lost in the noise of other factors that are now driving the price, whether that's on the demand side or, or whatever. I'm kind of curious. Do you think that this rolling over that you're that you're seeing in shale is something that could actually manifest itself in the market in the coming three months? Or yes. give, really? Yeah. Next three six. Yeah, because in the way I think it's going to manifest is I think you're going to see oil 70, 72, 75, 80, 82, 
85. And I don't know what the number on oil is that makes people go, oh, but you know, people are gonna start doing the math. I'm like, hey, oil at 78 is now in September, is now up year mm-hmm. over year on year ago. And up year over year on year ago means the energy on headline CPI is up year over year, which means I need to take away the negative 1% benefit the headline from energy. I need to add, uh-oh, headline's now going to be six again. And when the headline goes from five, three, the whole market thinks headline's going to four, to three, to two. And when headline turns around, it goes to six, to seven, then that's where I, that's why I say, I think in the next three, four months, you're going to start to see it because the energy situation is like, it's rolling. It's rolling as we speak. And, you know, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's six months, but I don't think it's a year. Where are they at with the SPR? So I know once it started taking off there at the beginning of 2022, they stepped the government stepped into the market with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve heavily. Like we were probably going to 150 plus if they didn't step in with the magnitude of I'm going to call it printing oil printing (laughs) that popped out of oil swaps. Yeah, those are just oil swaps with our with our with our allies. Have they, because I haven't really been uh, tracking it very closely over the last uh, quarter, are they still aggressively in the market manipulating that price or have they really kind of taken their hands off the SPR? I know it hasn't been refilled. I think they're still draining it slightly. What's the current status of that? And then- That's the last I saw. Okay. How much more, I know we're at uh, all-time lows, but could they do another drop? I'm calling it a drop like they did in early 2022 to stop the price from exploding higher if what you're saying uh, is realized and the, and the price does start to take off again. Have they fired their shot? Are they done at this point? I would think they could. But again, that, that's something I don't know. And I don't think there's a lot. I've not read anybody who knows sort of what the level they can go to. It's a little bit of a mystery because this stuff's been sitting at the bottom of salt caverns in whatever, Louisiana for 40 years just sitting there. And it's not like they sent scuba divers down into this stuff to sort of, you know, do tests of what's at the bottom and, and what shape it's in. It's, it is, I've not read anybody that, that does that. So I don't know that they know how far they can do it. But let's set that aside and say, okay, yes, they can do that. Then we start to get into a question, and it's almost related back to your initial point, but you get into a situation of an emerging market with FX reserves, right? Where the whole market knows what an emerging market has in FX reserves. And at first, when they intervene, the market goes, oh, right? They, they actually go along with it. They help the central bank. But there's a magical point in these emerging market currency crises where once they go too far down, they, once they burn down their FX reserves too low, the market starts to work against them and goes, they're going to run out of dollars at this pace and at this date, and let's press it because once they're out of dollars, they have to devalue their currency. And then we know it's, that's what George Soros did, right? It's what he did to the to Bank of England, in essence. You saw it in the Southeast Asia crisis, with Indonesia and uh, Thailand back in the late 90s. Same thing. There's a dynamic to this that the same thing will happen, in my view, which is to say the whole market knows where zero is on those salt caverns. The whole market knows that the reality is they probably can't get to zero. There's some amount of volume in there that is unusable. Mm-hmm. They know how much they burned it down and they know they've knocked the price down uh, with it. 
if they come out and do, let's say they come out and do another big shot. Hey, we're going to get it back down. You know, oil's up to 80 again. We want it back at 70. Two things. Number one, the market's going to go there. We know we don't know how much more they got, but they don't got that much. It's the same thing as an emerging market with currency reserves. Number two, the whole market is going to start realizing, oh my God, they are putting a second and a third and a fourth bullet in the head of shale by doing this. Mm -hmm. They're ensuring that shale is going to roll over, which just makes the... And so paradoxically, you could get into a situation like you get with a troubled EM where they come out and shoot their shot and oil goes up and now they're done. Now they're done because now you've got... And that's, to me, when I layered at my sort of tactical outlook near term of like, hey, you have this credit crunch coming. I think everybody knows about the credit crunch liquidity suck. I don't think anybody's really focused on the liquidity crunch, credit, credit suck, credit crunch... Uh, liquidity suck and, and and banking stuff is overlaying what is possible slash likely going to happen to oil, uh, barring a very severe recession. And by virtue of what happens to oil, what happens to headline CPI, what happens to rates and, and the daisy chain that I think that will reset off for a time. And, and to be clear, that will force more liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. And I fully concede I could, you know, maybe the market's looking through the valley on that. I'm there for that. I'm not fully there for that, but I've got position in case I'm wrong on that. But that's the market is like the bond market credit stuff. They're just not paying attention to this energy thing at all. Hey, let's transition gears here just a little bit on the Bitcoin side, uh, Luke. I posted right before we started talking about an hour ago, I posted this post. I said, I'm sorry, but after watching BlackRock, Fidelity, Citadel, Schwab, and now Deutsche Bank all apply for Bitcoin ETFs, spot exchanges, etc., only a few days after the SEC dropped the TRO on Binance and sues Coinbase, how can't you think that this entire past year was a giant inside job coordinated between the Wall Street parasites and government regulators so that they could catch up? It's got 3,000 likes in an hour. It seems to have resonated a lot with, with people. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts as somebody who's a very pro-Bitcoin that understands the, the rationale behind it and seeing everything that transpired this past year. And I just find it insane that you have, I don't even know how many companies apply for a Bitcoin spot ETF for the SEC to shoot every one of them down. And then within a week, literally a week after they go and sue Binance through an emergency order, and then the whole time Gary Ginsler has been saying, well, we can't actually assess what's happening with spot markets. And that's why we're not going to approve a Bitcoin ETF. They slapped this emergency order uh, lawsuit on Binance. And within a week, BlackRock of all companies files an ETF. And just so people are aware, their track record of having ETFs approved is something like they filed 550 and only one has ever been disapproved out of out of like their 550 that they've applied uh, for in the past. So very high probability that this is going to go through. And I just I just shrug my shoulders and just am disgusted by what appears to be just government, big Wall Street bank coordination. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. <laughs> You're gonna give me some trouble with that lead in. <laughs> I have two thoughts. Number one, anytime someone tells me, well, we have free market capitalism, like I kind of go, okay. Like okay, guy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and I think unfortunately, so you know, 
There's some Wild West stuff, and this is, to be clear, this is not sort of saying there's some Wild West stuff that probably needed regulation in the crypto world, like of, of like the insanity offshore. Whatever. I understand the need for some, for some regulation in the crypto world, not, you know, whatever. But it's if you've been paying attention, and I know you have over the last 20 years, seeing something like that as you laid out, you just kind of like add it to the pile, right? Like it's not surprising to me. The other thing it does get my antenna up on, having spent as much time in gold as I have over the last 15 years and and really going down that rabbit hole, and it's something you and I've talked about before, which is historically the way the Western policymakers have attempted to control gold's price is by allowing the unadulterated proliferation of unallocated paper derivatives on gold itself. In other words, there's a bunch of demand for gold. Two things can happen. The price of gold can go up or the amount of unallocated paper promises on gold can go up and gold's price can remain relatively static. And the latter is has been an oversimplified version of what has happened uh, really since the mid 80s uh, on some level with some periods of time where that wasn't uh, the case, where the price was allowed to rise for one reason or another. Point being, anytime I see favored governmental parties, BlackRock, I would say in particular in that case, very, very politically connected, shall we say, looking to get into paper derivatives around Bitcoin, I want to be, I want, it gets my attention. And that's not to say it's going to create the unallocated derivative, just the creation of unallocated paper promises is a way, is the playbook for controlling gold. I'm not saying that's what's happening here. Maybe they're going to get a bunch of money and they're going to bid Bitcoin. And, and you and I have talked before, Bitcoin is very different from gold in, in that it's very, it's much harder to do to Bitcoin than it is to do to gold centralized storage. And, 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 and so maybe it's just an attempt. Maybe it's not an attempt. Maybe they just want to be there and it's going to be let to run and away we go. And, and hey, great. In which case, like, whatever. It's just an example of sort of, you know, government connected people getting the contract sort of a thing. That's my stream of consciousness on it. I don't have a strong opinion on it one way or another. My antenna is up. You and I talk about, it. I don't think they can do what they, I don't think they can do to Bitcoin what the expansion of unallocated paper, like they've done to gold centered in London for, for years and years and years. But those are, that's the stream of consciousness around it. I'm going to give you an option for the last question, then we're going to wrap this up. Do you want to talk about commercial real estate or would you like to talk about the China-US relationship? Let's talk about the China-US relationship. All right, let's do it. What are your thoughts? Take that for a thousand, Alex. <laughs> 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 We're dating ourselves there. Some, some of the you and was like, who the hell's Alex? <laughs> well, what are your thoughts? Because I mean, this is, this is really heating up. I guess for the audience, you're so good at being able to zoom way out and really kind of make things digestible for people. So like, what are the critical variables with this relationship that's happening between the US and China right now? Like, what are the key things at play? And then maybe we can talk about things that are more nuanced that you that you really want to dig into. I used to I used to play golf every every Saturday with my late father-in-law, who was a teamster official, never had a day of college education in his life. And we usually played with two of his Teamster official buddies, two Italian guys who collectively between the two of them never had a day of college education in their life. And this was in the early 2000s. 
And so the China thing and China and the WTO laid a one and then they started seeing their, you know, their membership get, you know, the factories go overseas, et cetera, et cetera, you know, to China, to China, China. And, you know, these guys, but they're very street smart, right? They're for, for a number of different reasons, they're very street smart. And these guys are, their comments were always the same. Yeah, our factories go in there. I understand why our factories go in there. But why aren't they thinking ahead? Like this, we're sending jobs to a communist country. We're sending factories. We're saying, this is, you know, great. These companies are going to make more money in the short run, but it's going to kill us in the long run. Mm-hmm. And so you have three guys who never collectively had a day of edu- of college education between them. And this thing figured out in like, oh, four, oh, five. And what's interesting to me is our think tank Washington political class now sounds like my late father-in-law and his two Teamster official buddies 20 years ago. And they they're educated, you know, they're 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 educated beyond educated. Their degrees have degrees have degrees. And you can see how much Washington has benefited from this China arrangement. And so when I when I see Washington squawk. The way they're squawking, finally, they're squawking because they're losing. When they were winning, when they felt like they were winning, when they felt like they were the senior partner in the relationship, Washington wasn't squawking. They were saying they were telling Teamster Teamster members getting laid off, learn to code. Now they're squawking about China. So, number one, I think the fact that Washington is squawking tells you it ain't going well. We are, there is a, there's a serious, and it's, I'm reading the book Ship Wars by Chris Miller. Mm-hmm. It is so reminiscent of Japan. Like they loved Japan. They loved it until they started losing to Japan. Mm-hmm. Then it was a problem. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two, Biden's running the Trump playbook. Like people might not like Trump, but Trump created an awareness in Washington that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You look at what Biden's doing. Biden is out trumping Trump. I mean, we had a chart in our piece last week highlighting that that, that industrial U.S. private manufacturing construction spending is 190 billion run rate. It's like tripled in the last two years under Biden. So they're running industrial policy, and it's the right move. It's inflationary, etc. I guess the third thing I'll close with, and then you know we can kind of talk about it, is this idea of decoupling is the same lack of second derivative thinking by a lot of the same people in 2003, except on steroids, except it won't take 20 years for them to figure out how, how wrong they are. If you hard decouple from China, you are talking about instant, severe inflation yes. globally, supply chain collapse, debt market collapse, Global central bank yield curve control up, and that because there's no there's no appreciation for how anything actually gets made or produced or where it comes from or how much of it is like just zero for anybody that would actually suggest that with a straight face. I hear, and it's it's you know. But I heard people say, oh, there's, you're crazy. You know, the U.S. economy way better. And I want to ask people that say that, when was the last time you spent a lot of time in a not top 15 U.S. city? When was the last time you, you did? Because if you did, you would start to see a lot of these places look like emerging markets already based yeah. on what has happened over the last 20 years. There has been a hollowing out of labor capacity, of manufacturing capacity. And the military, you and I have talked about this before, has been squawking about this increasingly loudly for the last 15 years, because to your point, 
you know, I think it was U.S. Marine Corps General Barrow famous said, right? Amateurs study tactics, professionals study logistics. Military yeah. is in the logistics business, full stop. You know, you can say, well, we're going to fight a war and let's just print the money. And you're like, uh, that's great, but our tanks take diesel, you moron. And that's like an oversimplification of sort of a lot of the think tank world Washington was like, mm-hmm. we're just going to use the dollar. It's like, that ship sailed. To what? <laughs> yeah. To do what? The dollar doesn't make on a factory line. They don't, you know, they don't build, the dollar doesn't build. Now, you can do that and they're starting to do that. But again, there is still this belief in Washington. Well, I can print the money and reshore and I can keep the status quo financial system. No, no, you can't. If you want to do that, if you want to reshore, you know, I said this at a conference in 2021. uh, I, I said, look, the U.S. has to choose. Does it want to make stuff? And if it wants to make stuff and reshore, if it wants to compete with China in this global power competition, the bond market has to die on a real basis. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're going to print the money, build the factories, make the stuff here, but then inflation is going to go nuts. The Fed's going to have to cap yields because the U.S. government's debt load has run up their debt doing stupid shit for 20 years. U.S. government can't afford more than 5 6%. So the Fed's going to have to cap rates. The dollar will suffer. Bond market will suffer. And that's what will have to happen. And it is what it is. It's funny. Like people say, well, China's the next Japan, but they always leave out. How did, what was the first step we did to start to, to fight Japan? We devalued the dollar massively against the yen at the Plaza Accord. Mm-hmm. And they always want to leave that part out. So it, there's, yeah, see, so you're getting me animated now. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, this is why I gave you the option, Luke, because I knew you'd pick the, the good one. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, so yeah, the decoupling thing is, like it might need to happen. Like, let's be honest. Like, if if, deco- if you know hard decoupling is happening, your the appropriate allocation to bonds and especially long duration bonds is zero. It's actually less than zero. You want to borrow as much money as you can that you can afford, et cetera, et cetera. But the appropriate the appropriate allocation of bonds is zero because inflation globally coupling with China was disinflationary, and it's strange credulity to think that decoupling in any way, let alone a hard decoupling would be also disinflationary. Luke, this is always a pleasure. We could talk literally all day, just the two of us. Uh, it's funny. Cause when I, well, I, I know when I call you from time to time, just to pick your brain on various things, it just keeps going. Like we just can't stop talking when we get together and it's always a pleasure. And I know your time is, is very valuable. And I appreciate uh, you always making time to come on our show and have these just amazing conversations. Give people a handoff to your website, which I am a subscriber of. I get so much value out of your weekly newsletter, uh, your book, or anything else that you want to highlight. Oh, I appreciate it. I mean, first off, let me say it. I get as much as, as I, I learn as much as I share when, every time I talk with you. So I appreciate it. Nice. And I appreciate you having me back on. In terms of more people with more in wanting to learn more information about where they can uh, learn about our product, uh, both mass market institutional, uh, FFTT-LLC.com. And they can find out more uh, uh, or they can they can find me on Twitter at, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Luke, thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, buddy. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So 
anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.